0: You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Tom Holland. This conversation is with Tom Holland in his home in London. He's a novelist, a playwright, translator and historian. After writing commercially and critically successful novels in the 1990s, he turned his talents to history, writing critically acclaimed histories of the Greco-Persian Wars, the rise of Islam, the Roman Empire and most recently the legacy of Christianity in the West. His most recent book, Dominion, the making of the Western mind, has generated really intense debate. It has a very provocative thesis which is that we in the West, whether we like it or not, are all Christians deep down in the sense that no other force has shaped our civilization like this. And that even when we make judgments about Christianity, we tend to do it from what might be called a Christian worldview, even unconsciously. But we'll come to that later. Uh, he also co hosts the podcast. The rest is history. He's playing the uh, cricket tragic. Uh, and uh, it's terrific to be here and appreciate your time enormously. Tom? Very honored. So to start uh, a little bit about your background as a historian, even though you came to being a professional historian quite late uh, in your life, uh, perhaps if you don't mind me saying that, you've clearly always had a great love for it, played a major role in your novels. What is it about history that you find so appealing and important? Because we live in an age when most young people seem to think all wisdom resides in the present.
1: I always found it... um kind of more thrilling and more exciting, I think, to be honest. Uh, and it may be that um, it it was kind of generated by something that's even older than history, which is, called prehistory. Mm. Uh, and I was one of those boys who was obsessed by dinosaurs. Oh, right. Uh, and <laughs> I say, remember yeah. always, you know, I'd go up the um, up the lane behind my house. I grew up mm. outside Salisbury, um, home of the, the famous spire, yeah. uh, Stonehenge. Um, so, you know, a, a, an old landscape, an old countryside, but mm. I'd go up um, up the lane, look around at the fields and wish that it was a Mesozoic swamp mm. and that it was full of dinosaurs. And of course, it never was. So um, that sense of a kind of yearning yeah. for a past that in my imaginings, my kind of childhood imaginings were more vivid, more exciting. I, I kind of moved almost seamlessly onto an obsession with the Roman Empire. And in a sense, the Romans are the tyrannosaurs of history. You know, they're fierce, they're glamorous, they're safely extinct. Um, <laughs> and I, th- I think that that, that, that association of, of, of history with excitement and color and a sense of a world that is more glamorous than the present is one that has never left me.
0: To come to something that greatly interests me, um, a lot of postmodern philosophers now would reject the idea of, of human nature which I have an enormous problem with, to be honest. But it, it strikes me that that question is probably better answered by historians.
1: What do you, what do you well,
0: think are there detectable patterns or behaviours <sighs> that suggest that there is, in fact, such a thing as human nature and maybe it doesn't change over time?
1: I, I mean, I'd say the irreducible factor about human nature is a need for food. Um, <laughs> you know, the, Is that a human we, nature or is it a well, physiological thing? The, the the behavior that is consequent on hunger, right. I think is is a pretty irreducible. And the maxim that you know every society is three meals away from anarchy does seem to me a very good one. And hunger and the operation of hunger has been a constant through most of history. And I think that we are kind of oblivious to that in the West because we've 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 lived so long without that anxiety. Um, and I also think that uh, the past two years has served to awaken to us again, you know, our three, four, five generations that have have not had to worry about infectious disease as well. Mm -hmm. So I think a a, a dread of of starvation and a dread of disease, I think these have been incredibly powerful constants. And I think the dread of that, I mean, seems to me pretty universal and fundamental. Now, I I think beyond that, that what we might be tempted to call human nature is almost invariably very, very contingent. And that is actually one of the things that, that made me interested in writing the history of Christianity was, um, I, you know, I talked about my fascination with Rome. Rome, Roman society seems to me to be profoundly, profoundly different in, in ways that, that increasingly seem to me very, very unsettling and frightening. To the way that we see the world. But when I, the original, the first work of history I wrote was a book about the fall of the Roman Republic and I wrote it against the backdrop of 9-11 and the build-up to the Iraq war when people were talking about the United States as a kind of imperial republic. And what I was interested in writing that book were the parallels between you know, the early 21st century and the first century BC. But what struck me writing that book was actually that the, the 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 parallels, although superficially attractive, couldn't compare with the the, the profundity of the moral, the ethical, the sexual, the psychological differences between us and and the Roman world. And that some things that we might see as being absolutely kind of fundamental to human nature, so um, attitudes to sex, for instance, so different, so different. Uh, and, And, Essentially, that's something that I've been reflecting on for as long as I've been writing about antiquity, is, is why and how is it that the changes that, 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 that have happened since, say, you know, the classical period, why are they so profound? And I do think, you know, not to give away too huge a spoiler, but I do think ultimately um, the answer is to be explained by, by the Christian revolution. Tom, before we come to that,
0: I'm just interested, you know, this incredible breadth of history that... that uh... That, that you've got across. Um, I think it was Chesterton who said that, uh, commented that um, the reason that fact is often stranger than fiction is that fiction is what we invent with the human mind. and Therefore, it's more amenable to human minds. Sometimes facts, which we are not responsible for, are so startling that they're much harder to believe. Can you think of things that you've uh, unearthed in your life as a historian that have been so
1: startling you wouldn't have believed them without a lot of evidence? Well, I, th- I think that um, I think that actually the border between fact and fiction is much more nebulous than than people might think, and that's. I mean, we see that very, very clearly with what's going on at the moment in Ukraine. That there are rival versions of what both sides are claiming is to be truth. So, in a sense, both sides are, are telling stories, and obviously, we have to decide. You know, it's, it's it's up to us as concerned citizens, uh, as politicians. In the long run, as historians, to decide which approximates better to reality. And yet, there is always a sense, I think, that um, reality is clothed in kind of narrative and in fiction to, to that extent. And the further back in time you go, the truer that is. So, the periods of history that I've always been particularly interested in, the sources for, say, for ancient Greece or for ancient Rome, are often they're already shaped in kind of not exactly fictional ways, but then they're, they're not exactly documentary evidence either. So there's always been that I, I've always been interested in the way in which um the the borderlines between fact and fiction are contested and can bleed into one another. Now I'm aware that I have kind of evaded your question there with some kind of philosophical nebulousness. But I so that I will give you an example of um, a story that did. I read it. I came across it. And I thought this cannot possibly be true. Uh, and it was while I was researching Dominion uh, mm. and I was looking. Uh, I wanted to write about medieval heresy. So I was reading a lot about medieval heresy. And I wanted something that touched on um, the, the attitude of the church to uh, to, to women. Uh, And I came across this story that in 1300, in um, uh, an abbey outside Milan, the Inquisition moved in and they dug up the grave of a woman called Guglielma and they exhumed her and they burnt her remains. And this woman, Guglielma, had been supposedly of Hungarian royal stock. It was also rumoured that she had some kind of relationship to the royal family in England. And she had then come to Milan and had lived a life of of seemingly um, spotless purity and holiness. And as a result, following her death, her shrine, her tomb had become a kind of focus of pilgrimage. But what the Inquisition claimed was that... um, her grave, her tomb had been, become the focus for an absolutely shocking heresy, namely the claim by um, the woman who uh, was in charge of the, the abbey, a woman called Mafreda, who was um, the, uh, the cousin of the tyrant of Milan, that um, Guglielma had actually been the incarnation of the Holy Spirit and that her coming Um, had served to bring in a new age of the world. So there'd been the age of the father and then the coming of Christ had ushered in the the, the age of the son. And now Elmer's coming had ushered in the age of the spirit. And this was going to be an age in which the pope and all the cardinals would be women. And it was an age, just as the age of the son had been a masculine age, this was going to be a feminine age. Um, and I thought, that can't be true. I mean, that's such an astonishing story. And I read it and it, it was indeed true. But I realised one of the reasons why it seemed to me so fictional was that it had the cast of an Umberto Eco story. So it, it was like The Name of the Rose. It was like something that Umberto Eco would have written. And of course, Umberto Eco, you know, he lived in, in, in Milan. He was a specialist in the subject of medieval heresy. Of course, he knew about it, and of course, it must have fed into his fiction and the way that he kind of, you know, mediated history and transformed it into fiction. So that absolutely sums up for me the kind of the, the fascination that I find in the relationship of history to fiction. I, I, I think it's 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 it, it's almost um, you shouldn't try and fight against the, the, the implication that, um, that history can generate fiction and that fiction can then kind of slant and perhaps distort and frame one's understanding of history. That relationship, I think, is, is absolutely impossible to disentangle.
0: Well, let's then uh, uh, come to the thesis of this book. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you write... I think very honestly and very transparently that over time for you, your belief in Christianity faded like a dimmer switch slowly turning Mm -hmm. the light down. Uh, And many people who have, um, if you like, decided that it's not true and they don't believe it, I think intrinsically are inclined to be highly critical of it. You set out to be very objective and to provocatively say to us, we're still massively shaped. Nothing, you say, has shaped a culture as powerfully as Christianity. Uh, they're, they're very interesting observations, and um, I'd like to come to those now. Um, you, how, is it possible for
1: a historian to be truly empirical? No. Given, no, No. of course not. Um, so, I mean, just to answer that question first, um, I about 10 years ago i started work on a book looking at the origins of islam uh i wanted to um basically the question i wanted to ask myself about this was just as in 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 the western half of the roman empire um you can see that there are continuities from roman rule that feed into the kingdoms of early medieval latin christendom um you know that would that would be kind of unarguable it would be uncontroversial um so likewise in what becomes the islamic caliphate it's pretty clear that there are are, are fairly strong roman and persian elements in in this kind of emergent islamic civilization whether it's The mosaics or the domes or whatever. You know, these are continuities that are are coming from the great empires that had existed before it. And so I wanted to write a book that said, well, well, to what extent is is the caliphate a kind of successor empire to the Roman and Persian empires that that, that the Arabs had conquered and defeated? Um, And answering that question actually kind of drew me into much more treacherous and boggy waters than I'd anticipated, (laughs) because ultimately I I kind of ended up um, questioning the received narratives that were written a century two centuries after the life of Muhammad and therefore uh, uh, it seemed to me you know un, you know we're talking about the way that that narrative that fiction and non-fiction kind of bleed into one another and the way that stories come to shape reality and the the emergence of islam and the stories that came to be told by muslims about the life of muhammad about the emergence of the quran Um, about the early years of of what they came to see as the Islamic conquests, although I I came to think that they weren't Islamic at all. Um, This required me to question some pretty fundamental beliefs. Uh, And obviously, you know, this had the potential to be quite upsetting to devout Muslims, because I was questioning things that were incredibly important to them. And I remember, um, giving a talk about it. And there was um, a Muslim in the audience who who put her hand up and said, why have you done this? Why are you questioning things that are so important to me? These stories are so important to me. And, and you were like, you know, someone who's just kind of, you know, you're like a bull in a china shop, just smashing all this stuff. Why have you done it? You would never do this to your own beliefs. And I had already come to that conclusion because I was aware writing about why I thought that the Quran could not have come from via an angel from God, why I thought the Quran had to have emerged from a human context, a a context in which Jewish and Christian and Zoroastrian and Roman and Persian and pagan and Arab, Elements were kind of mingling in a great Petri dish to produce this text and in the long run, this kind of great civilization. I, I, I'd, I'd come to the conclusion that the reason that I believed that was because I didn't believe in the Muslim God. And so therefore, I was not adopting a position of neutrality. My secular, sceptical, liberal, humanist Western perspective was no more neutral than the perspective of a, a Muslim believer. And so one of the things that made me want to um, to write about dominion was a recognition of that Muslim woman, that she had a point, that it was important. It was kind of incumbent on me if I was going to question the fundamentals of Muslim belief, that I should question the fundamentals of my beliefs as a kind of liberal skeptic. And so that's, and I'd already begun to think, well, I, I should be doing this. But this kind of, you know, it put, steel in my backbone I thought yes that's what I must do and so essentially when I looked at my foundation myths which were kind of enlightenment the idea that you know there had been darkness and then there was light I'd already come to realize that these were these were myths as as, as surely mythical as anything that muslims believed um,
0: yeah but if I just for a moment you make the point that myths may be myths but that doesn't mean that they're wrong right Yeah. And
1: I think the whole thing of looking at um, the myths of Islam, which I didn't believe in, and I had no kind of uh, childhood sense of identification with, they didn't kind of move me. I, I was much more able to be kind of objective and chilly in my attitude to them, did make me kind of alert to the degree to which the myths that I did believe in or the myths that I had been brought up in, that even if, I, um, even if I tried to step back from them, even if I tried to kind of put them under the microscope, I, I, you know, they still weren't dead to me. They still had the power. And in that sense, that perhaps they were, they, they were still true to me.
0: Well, that's yeah, very interesting. And, and, and thank you. I mean, I think that transparency and honesty on your part is remarkable uh, as a lover of history. If you can't be empirical, you can at least try and be transparent about where you're mm. coming from. And so I admire you for that. And uh, I'd like to turn to what you've actually called the Christian revolution in history. And to quote, uh, you wrote this, to live in a Western country is to live in a society still utterly saturated by Christian concepts and assumptions. Whether it is the conviction that the workings of conscience are the surest determinants of good law, or the church and state exist as distinct entities, the West, increasingly empty though the pews may be, remains firmly moored, to its Christian past. Can I just ask you, what do you think are some of the most significant changes that Christianity has wrought in the culture that we live in today?
1: Well, there are so many. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, it's all, I mean, that's a kind of very difficult question because there are so many. But I, mm. I, would, I, I would say to, to look at the most obvious one because it's the symbol of, of, of Christianity. Um, if you look at the cross, it's such an odd thing to have as a kind of focus of veneration and to have as a kind of fundamental symbol of a civilization, Um, because a cross is an emblem of torture. And to the Romans, it was an emblem of their power to torture to death their inferiors. So crucifixion was inflicted on on those who opposed Roman power in provinces. Um, But it's also the the paradigmatic fate that is visited on slaves who rebel against their masters. Mm. And, you know, everyone who's seen Spartacus will remember the, the great line of crosses lining the Appian Way. Uh, these are billboards advertising the ability of Rome to crush rebellion by the weak. Um, and so therefore it serves as a symbol of the of, of, of the power over of the powerful over the powerless. Now, Christianity absolutely upends that. It says, Actually, uh, the cross is a symbol of the powerless triumphing over the powerful. It's the symbol of the the slave triumphing over the master, um, of the victim triumphing over the torturer. And this is such a radical notion that it's hard adequately to express how radical it is. Um, And the idea that the last shall be first that there is an inherent dignity and value and indeed power in being a victim. Uh, this is something that would have been utterly bewildering to the Romans. And it, it takes a kind of a long time for first the Roman world and then the world of the kind of Germanic conquerors in the West and, and, and so on to, to to properly synthesize and, 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 and understand it. Uh, and that's why I think it, in a way, we are so habituated to it that, that it takes an effort to understand just how weird, just how strange that idea is. And it's why, actually, I think the, the, the modern who has most profoundly and unsettlingly understood just how radical that idea is, how radical the idea that the cross of all things should become the emblem of a new civilization, was a man who was um, not just an atheist, but a radically hostile anti-Christian atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche said this is a repellent thing. Nietzsche identified with the power and the glory and the beauty of classical civilization, And he thought that Christianity notoriously was a religion for slaves. And he saw in the emblem of Christ nailed to the cross, a kind of disgusting subversion of the ideals of the classical world, a privileging of those who properly should be ground beneath the heels of the mighty. And he saw it as a kind of sickness that then, you know, it kind of infected the blonde beast, as he called it. That this, uh, you know, the primordial figure of the warrior gets corrupted and and turned into a a, a monk, a monkish figure who's sick with poverty and sympathy for the poor and the oppressed, and Nietzsche thought it was disgusting. Now, those ideas, however vulgarized, um, of course feed into by a a very septic sump, which is that of, of fascism. Yeah, and fascism. I think, was the most radical and revolutionary movement that uh, Europe has seen since the age of Constantine. Because unlike the French Revolution, unlike the Russian Revolution, it doesn't only target institutional Christianity, it targets the moral and ethical fundamentals of Christianity. Because the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, are still preaching that idea that the victim should be raised up from the dust and that the oppressor should be humbled into the dust. It's still preaching the idea that the the first shall be last and the last shall be first just as Christ had done. The Nazis do not buy into that. The Nazis buy into the Nietzschean idea that uh, the weak are weak and should be treated as weak, as contemptible, as something to be crushed. And I think the horror of that for us in the post-war world um, is the measure of how profoundly Christian we remain. And one of the reasons I think why institutional Christianity fades in the wake of the Second World War is that in a sense fascism, Nazism gives us an alternative myth, but it's still a very Christian one. The fact that um, Hitler has replaced Satan and uh, Auschwitz has replaced hell doesn't alter the fact that we understand Nazism to be the quintessence of evil for deeply, deeply Christian reasons.
0: That's an interesting perspective. I'm sure you're right. Um, A little known sort of factoid from history is that uh, the first time that Mussolini met Hitler, he gave him a leather-bound set of Nietzsche's writings. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. And it's really significant to my way of thinking because I think, uh, as you say, he loathed Christianity, but he was very aware that its collapse might have much deeper consequences than the other, if I can use this word, trendy atheists, of the day realised, I yeah. wonder whether we're still not grappling with what's no, really we're left.
1: No, we're not. We're not at all. Uh, and, and the reason for that is precisely the way in which Nietzsche's philosophy fed into, into fascism. Mm. Um, so Nietzsche, Nietzsche was particularly contemptuous of, um, uh, of English liberals. Uh, he saw it as a peculiar kind of English... Disease, so I'm sure he would would have included Australians under that umbrella, um, and, and he was he was contemptuous of the idea that he associated with with kind of people like George Eliot, that um, you could get rid of Christian belief but still have the kind of superstructure of um, uh, you know Christian ideals and Christian philosophy and Christian teachings and Christian assumptions, um, and I think that he would you know, if he were alive today, he would be as contemptuous of Richard Dawkins or A.C. Grayling um, as he was of George Eliot. And he would say of of both of them and of most atheists in the West today that they are basically Christians. Uh, You know, Nietzsche saw humanists, communists, liberals, people who may have defined themselves against Christianity as being absolutely in the fundamentals Christian. And I think he's, you know, I think he's right about that because I think that um, in a sense so much of, of, you, you know, there's a sense in which atheism that doesn't repudiate the kind of the ethics and the morals and the values of Christianity is really simply a logical endpoint of a trend within Protestantism. It's, and indeed Christianity generally, because, you know, going right the way back to the Hebrew prophets, you know, who precede Christianity, what they are preaching is a kind of desacralization of the world. They look at springs and trees and mountaintops and they say there are no gods there, there are no spirits there, Uh, you know, this is just stock and stone, God is up there, Uh, and this is something that obviously Christians inherit, so that when, you know, Christian missionaries go out into the dripping woods of Saxony, they chop down the the great trees that are sacred to the Norse gods, the Nordic gods, the Germanic gods, and say, look, these are just trees. And they chop them up and turn them into chapels. Um, And in a sense, what then happens in the Reformation When you get Protestant reformers looking at the Catholic church and saying, well, this is all just hocus pocus. This is mumbo jumbo. This is ludicrous magic. Uh, We must, um, you know, we must we must get rid of this kind of magical thinking. We must restore the church to its kind of natural purity. That sense that um, superstition must be banished, that idols must be overthrown is something that, of course, in the long run will be picked up by by uh, by atheist radicals. But, you know, whether it's in the the French Revolution or whether it's in kind of new atheist movement in the 21st century, they're still basically cleaving to the kind of the fundamental Christian ideas. It's just and, and, and the very idea that you should, you know, banish superstition, get rid of, of, of idols, that doing that will bring you into enlightenment, that the people who walk in darkness will, be, will, will see a great light. I mean, this is a kind of Christian idea through and through. And as I say, I think it's I think the, the idea that having banished, you know, the supernatural from springs and trees, you end up banishing the supernatural from everything is a kind of logical endpoint, and imagining that banishing them will somehow bring you to, to truth right well
0: if we can we backtrack a moment to the cross and you talked about yeah. it symbolized a whole lot of things that were very radical i agree with that i mean i actually think christianity is astonishingly radical and one it's always amused me that a lot of people say "Oh, christians are so conservative actually what they believe in is radical beyond belief and most radical is that in fact that aspect of the image of the cross, particularly when it's empty, there's no body on it. There's this idea you know, that Christians think history matters and they actually believe that God in human form not only died on that cross, but he left it and rose again. And the uh, polling I've seen in Australia is quite amazing, that even to this day, and Australia is a very secular country, of Australians actually think in some form or another the resurrection happened. Not many people actually say they don't think it happened and quite a few are undecided.
1: But you see, I I don't think you need to believe in the resurrection uh, or even to believe that Jesus existed to buy into some some pretty fundamental values that derive from the story that Jesus suffered death on the cross and then rose in triumph on the third day. Um, Because I think the... You know, we've, we, we've seen over, again, over the past two years, the idea that black lives matter. Why do black lives matter? Because I, I would suggest uh, historically in, in the United States and, you know, elsewhere as well, uh, black people have, have suffered injustice. Uh, you know, they have, they have been the last and white people have been the first. Uh, and that is seen as being inherently wrong. But why should it be? Inherently well, you wrong. Raise I mean, that's the, the question. So that's the question. Yeah. Why should it be inherently wrong? And in, you know, in a, in a sense um, And you can see this right the way from from uh, Voltaire uh, you know this great French enemy of, uh, of, of of as he called it, he termed it Catholic superstition, la femme um, in the 18th century, he picks up on people who have suffered injustice at the hands of the Catholic Church as he sees it and um, campaigns for, for, for justice on their behalf. Why is he doing that? Because, I would suggest, he's been brought up in a culture where the image of someone who has suffered an unjust death and triumphed over his enemies is part of what he kind of breathes in. And I would say that that's still clearly the case today because the, the way in which... Um, the death of George Floyd acted like a kind of touch paper for all kinds of campaigns and ideals and principles kind of blazed across the Western world, um, although I think only the Western world, tellingly. So Voltaire adopts the cause of, for instance, um, a, a Protestant who is very tr- treated very badly uh, because he's a Protestant in a Catholic country, France, gets broken to death on the wheel terrifying kind of image of, of, of torture. This infuriates and angers and upsets Voltaire and he campaigns for justice and he sees it as kind of part of his campaign against the iniquities of the Catholic Church. But the truth is that he is able to win. He gets a pardon, posthumous pardon, for this guy who's been broken on the wheel because ultimately he is appealing to people who can understand because they're Christians that there is a deep injustice in someone innocent being tortured to death, it goes to the kind of the very heart of Christian and Catholic identity, and I think that you know we can see this this kind of trend. The way in which the the power of the victim tortured to death by a, an oppressive power still has this ability to convulse nations. So if we look at you know what happened in the summer of twenty twenty with the death of George Floyd. Um, that had a, a kind of very similar animating power because people looked at that and said, well, there, there, there is someone, you know, he couldn't breathe, he couldn't breathe, he was being kind of, he suffered death horribly and hideously. But why, why should it have had that power? Why should it have had that power? Why did it kind of generate people to go almost on pilgrimages to, to, to take the knee? to uh, fill great civic centers, not just in the United States, but across the Western world. I I would argue that, you know, there's nothing kind of culturally given about this. It's reflective of highly contingent trends that are so deep and ancient that ultimately they go back 2000 years to that very, very primal image of a man tortured to death by an oppressive state apparatus. Jesus on the cross.
0: So in a sense, what I hear you saying is that, strangely enough, when we cry out against injustice, and it often comes from people who now think Christianity is not just not true, it's bad. We've <laughs> got to break free of our moorings and, you know, it we'll be, won't be a good society until we get rid of Christianity. What you're actually saying is we're making those judgments through a profoundly Christian lens. We're not even aware of it.
1: I, th- I think it's really, really difficult to escape that Christian lens and to kind of go back to... Should
0: we try and escape it?
1: Well, I, I, I mean, I think that that is kind of the, the question that Nietzsche poses, is what would a society look like that genuinely repudiated Christian teaching? And I, I think that in a way to build a, to build a civilization on Christian teaching is a bit like building San Francisco on the San Andreas Fault. You know there are going to be tremors and occasionally big ones, you know, at fairly regular intervals, and the reason for that again is kind of hardwired into the Christian story because if you know if if the last must become first, and this is the kind of the great Christian narrative that 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 the power of Caesar will be replaced by the power of Christ. Um, That obviously sets in train all kinds of revolutionary movements. But the problem with that is that revolutionary movements bring to power new elites. So if you look at the 11th century where there is this kind of great convulsive process of revolution that brings to power uh, bishops and cardinals and priests and monks who see themselves as uh, trampling into dust the claim of Caesars and kings to have a right to uh, arbitrate in the dimension of the supernatural. And and they kind of humble kings and they force them to, to accept the, the primacy, ultimately, of the papacy. So medieval Europe is, is Europe's first experience of a revolutionary society. Um, that creates its own elite. And it kind of, in the long run, makes inevitable... Uh, a revolution against that elite, which we we call the Reformation, Mm. the Protestant Reformation. And the Reformation in turn throws up new elites. And so it goes on. And this is is a constant churn, a constant process. Christian society is constantly going through Reformation, reformatio, the remaking of the world, the ambition to pull down uh, those who have an unjust claim on power, to cleanse society to purify it, to elevate those who have been uh, trampled down. Um, and that seems to me a, a, a process that is absolutely going on now. Now, one of the paradoxes of this process, particularly, you know, since the French Revolution, really, is that Christianity itself has come to be seen as being part of this kind of oppressive structure but that doesn't alter the fact that, that it's you know we Christianity is condemned by say the French Revolution or by revolutionaries in the 60s or whatever for deeply deeply christian reasons
0: yeah that's that's a, something very powerful for people to think through um, to go back to your idea that in a sense we're repulsed by Nazism to the degree that it confirms, if you like, uh, a Christian view that we oughtn't to go there. That's probably not well put. But it seems to me to be very important because what the Nazi movement highlighted was that in reality there are no inalienable rights if you do away with God in terms of other human beings having, you know, being worthy of respect. Uh, yeah. And, and, and well, what have you, I mean they really did believe in the survival of the fittest and it's such yeah. an ugly doctrine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That well, it
0: repulses us and we say we can't go there.
1: Well, the, I mean, the Nazis repudiated two of the fundamental values that Christianity has always enshrined. And one, one of them you, you, you just touched on, the, the idea that um, uh, the, you know, the survival of the fittest, mm. that the, the idea that, that to be strong is to be good. Mm. You know, it was kind of fairly fundamental idea say say for the Greeks. I mean they kind of conflated uh you know the good beauty and a goodness and strength, you know, this it was to be to be a good person. Um but of course the other uh fundamental Christian ideal that the Nazis repudiate is the idea that as Paul put it, there is no Jew or Greek. Mm. Um and that in turn is a kind of refinement of the, the the teaching of Genesis, that God creates man and woman in his image. And therefore, if men and women are created in the image of God, every human being has an inherent dignity. Um, and this is an idea that over the course of the Middle Ages kind of feeds into the idea that human beings have rights, that if, you know, and, and, and this is something that, um, that, that churchmen and uh, lawyers in in the 12th century start to extrapolate from the gospel teachings, if Christ is saying to the wealthy you have a duty to to feed the hungry and to clothe those who have no clothes and to give shelter to those who are homeless, then it follows that the hungry have a right to food and those without clothes have a right to clothes and those who don't have a home have a right to a home. And so you start to, to get the idea that human beings have Inherent rights, and these are ideas that secularized feed into the American Revolution, into the French Revolution, into the um, uh, United Nations. Um, it's, it's a very, very um, profound idea that today, for lots of people who believe in human rights, they, they tend to kind of assume that they are imminent. But in the long run, you know, when you look at it in the kind of historical perspective. To believe in human rights requires just as much a, a leap of faith as believing that the Lord Jesus Christ rose on the third day and ascended into heaven. I mean, it's, it, these, are, these are theological precepts, three, theological ideas that um, have been bred specifically of Christian history. And the genius of the West has been to kind of package them and market them as though somehow they've been, you know, Removed from the Christian context that gave them birth. And I think that that one of the things that we're seeing, you know, seen over the past few decades, really since the, the, the 21st century, is that as Western power and influence retreats, so more and more of the world is kind of basically saying, well, you know, these ideas, these ideals are, you know, these are culturally contingent, these are your ideas, they're not our ideas. Um, and I think that this is unsettling for people in the West precisely because we have the kind of you know, the shadow of the Nazis hangs over mm-hmm. us, because the Nazis absolutely did think against Paul that mm-hmm. Jews and Greeks were completely separate. Uh, and, and and we know where that led. Mm. And part of the horror of of the Holocaust, the kind of the horror and the, the you know, the, the most grotesque irony in the history of Christendom is that um Hitler saw Paul, St. Paul, who said there is no Jew or Greek, as the embodiment of a kind of pernicious cosmopolitanism, a Jewish cosmopolitanism that he saw as having destroyed Greece and Rome. He thought this idea that there is no Jew or Greek, that there is no slave or free, that there is no man or woman, had corrupted classical civilization and destroyed it.
0: So your thinking behind that is Hitler thought that the Jews were subhuman; they were not human,
1: and, and he, somehow they well, climbed
0: he, under the idea. He,
1: that... he he saw them as a, as, a, as 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 the most dangerous enemy of the strong. Mm. That. Paul is preaching yeah. Christ crucified, he's preaching this dead man on the cross, he's preaching this universalism, this cosmopolitanism, mm. and this destroys the Roman Empire. Mm. And so he, Hitler thinks that um, if his Reich is going to last a thousand mm. years and not be brought down by a creeping Jewish cosmopolitanism, then he has to get rid of the Jews. But there's a case for saying that he targets the Jews for, for genocide because he blames them for Christianity which considering the fact that, that he, he, he draws on all, obviously all kinds of kind of very venerable Christian, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish propaganda, I mean, it's just the kind of the most hideous mm. irony and paradox.
0: To come to something else that really intrigues, actually it offends me, um, uh, it, it is part of the modern movement. We've seen this destaturing uh, of people from past ages without any contextualisation. And now I understand there's a debate in this country about de uh, up in Edinburgh, the statue, uh, statue of Livingstone, um, who was an abolitionist. Uh, but, it's said, he worked in a cotton factory when he was 10. I mean, that sounds like child slave labour, probably just so he could eat. And he was probably absolutely unaware at that stage of the charges now made against him. The cotton he was uh, involved in spinning would have been produced by slaves. So we ought to de him. In fact, there's a story of forgiveness. He obviously woke up one way and another, so he ought to be given credit for changing his mind. He became a champion of, um, of, of the slaves. To go even deeper, you think of William Wilberforce, an unbelievably privileged man, inherited a fortune, perhaps in today's money, $400,000 Australian, was seen as a future prime minister, he put it all at risk out of Christian conviction and led the movement to abolish slavery because he picked up on the idea, uh, as, as the Wedgwood, uh, the pottery maker had it, and um, in, in the famous bas Relief, the first modern political campaign material um, of, a, of a, a kneeling slave looking up imploringly saying, am I not a man and a brother? That, um, that uh, skin colour did not dictate whether you were human or not. All of that's washed out, are we not the great losers for well, not being more objective and contextualising things and being a bit more honest? I,
1: I, I, again, to go back to this idea that um, there's the, the Christian assumptions are, are kind of like, uh, almost like Japanese knotweed. If you ever had Japanese knotweed in your garden, you try and get rid of it and it just keeps coming back up. Um, I think that the the attitude to statues generally at the moment in the West, it's like kind of moral Japanese knotweed. And by that, what I mean is, look at the fundamentals of why we put up statues of dead people by and large. Uh, We put them up because we celebrate their heroism or their great achievements. Mm. So in Australia, the statue of Captain Cook. Captain Cook is seen as a a, a hero. He's put up... uh, Mm statue and an and inscription saying that he, you know, all the great things that he did. And the style of the statue is Roman because that's what the Romans did. Mm. Again, the idea of putting up statues of, of, of people who have done heroic things, not every civilization has done it. In fact, very few civilizations have done it, but the Greeks and the Romans did it and particularly the Romans. So this idea of putting up statues is basically a kind of 18th century, 19th century idea And it is expressive of the identification of European powers in this period with the ideals of Rome, the idea that Rome is a kind of model to follow. And if you're building an empire, as the British are doing, you can absolutely see why they're putting up statues of great empire builders. Uh, However, you know, I mean, however, whatever role they may be playing. So it may be kind of very overt. It may be Clive of India who, you know, Um, is absolutely overtly a conqueror, or it may be someone like Captain Cook who is an explorer, or it may be someone like Livingston who is a missionary, but these figures are going up because they express a kind of model of heroism. And I think that it is that model of heroism that we, and when I say we, I mean people in the West are starting to to feel queasy about. And I think the reason that, that people feel queasy about it is for, for kind of ultimately the christian reason that everyone is a sinner no one is perfect um, so you will always be able to find a reason why someone should be pulled down and you see this when so so you know in in uh, parliament square in um, in in london there's a statue of churchill and churchill has been a, a focus of a lot of protests because he said things that, that you know, I mean, he clearly was in many ways a racist. He did say racist things. Yeah, the bloke over uh, the channel was a lot worse. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course. But people then turn around and say, say well, there's a statue of Gandhi. Gandhi was incredibly racist <laughs> towards black people. Um, and, and so it goes on because you can do that pretty much everyone. Martin Luther King supposedly, you know, was was not mm. as maritally faithful as he might have been. There are all, you know, every, people are fallen. To put it in Christian terms, people are are naturally sinners, and so, and that is why, when the Roman world collapses and it becomes Christian, the idea of putting up statues of of of, uh, great figures goes away. Mm. So, I think that in that sense, you know, the 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 the, the queasiness about statues is an expression of that kind of Christian anxiety about whether anyone can adequately embody the kind of the, the 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 truth claims that we want. From from a society, and the fact that you know people are agitating to bring down Captain Kirk or Churchill or whatever for non-Christian reasons doesn't mean overtly non-Christian reasons doesn't mean that ultimately they're doing it because they are obeying the dictates. It seems to me of very very kind of deep-rooted, deep-seated theological motivations that may not seem to lots of protesters to be overtly theological, and yet in the fundamentals they are.
0: I, I, I still worry, I have to say, Tom, I really do. I'm with Frank Ferruti on this This attack, the destaturing in Australia to move, uh, 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 the move, the Australia Day celebrations and what have you. Most Australians don't even know what we're celebrating on that day, by the way, from the research. But he sees it painted as an attempt to... It looks like an attempt to, if you like, um, uh, rewrite history, but it's actually an attack on present culture so that the inheritors of that culture think, well, it's so bad and barbaric, we shouldn't continue it. I actually think it's quite dangerous. I mean, I think it is remarkable that Wilberforce gave up everything. He died a pauper. He gave up everything. He abandoned his position and everything to fight for people who were regarded as only worthy of being slaves. And there's a powerful story to tell there about... a powerful story of good, of humility, of sacrifice that's a model that ought to be held up. And I'm worried we're airbrushing these well, things out.
1: But what I would say, I guess, is that there is nothing as Western as the move to decolonize. Yes. It's an incredibly Western idea. The anxiety about yep. empire, the anxiety about uh, what the penalty, what the costs of empire might be, are hardwired into the way that Christians historically have seen the world, because Christ was crucified by by an empire, uh, and and so in a way, you know, the, the, nothing nothing is more expressive of the European origins of Australia than the anxiety about <laughs> these origins. Uh, that it, it's part of the fabric of Western civilization to. to to question what is powerful within the West. Yes, I see what you're driving. Uh, I, I, and and I would say that, that that Wilberforce, for instance, is an earlier iteration of this, uh, and the Quakers who campaign against slavery, mm. because they are cast by, you know, slave owners, plantation owners, whatever, as threatening the yes. the, the, the foundations of say British imperial power in the Caribbean by by doing this. Um, And the strange thing about the the abolitionist movement is, of course, that notoriously within the Bible there is, um, you know, there's no there's no prescription against institutional slavery. In fact, there's quite a lot of references in the Bible that seems to sustain and support slavery. And yet, beginning at the end of the seventeenth century through the eighteenth century, you get this increasing conviction on the part of of radical Protestants so Quakers, Baptists, um, evangelical Anglicans, that slavery is wrong. And they think this because they have a particular understanding of how the spirit moves one to read scripture, that it's not the words on the page, it's how the spirit moves you to understand the words on the page. And people in the 18th century, Protestants in the 18th century, Read the Bible, and they say the Spirit is telling us that that slavery is wrong, and this is a kind of great flame rush that ends up in the long run destroying the very idea of slavery as an institution. But it's again, it's 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 a kind of it's a very very contingent idea. Why? What's what's so wrong with slavery? That's the question that nobody now asks because we so take for granted that that it's uh, of course it's an evil, but we think it's an evil because that fire rush in the 18th century was so powerful that it ended up lighting up the hearts, not just of radical Protestants, but Protestants everywhere, and then Catholics, and then in the long run, people all around the world. Um, But if we assume, you know, to assume that as an absolute given that slavery is evil is to buy into a distinctively 18th century, radical Protestant understanding of theology and scripture people don't tend to think that, that, you know, that that's what they're doing now, but that is what they're doing. Uh, and I think that that's a kind of classic example of the way that the whole cycle of Western history has been a process of radicals pulling down given structures and trying to build something new that then in turn becomes a kind of new orthodoxy. And that that cycle of building up and tearing down, building up and tearing down has just been a constant for 1,000 years and re- continues to be a constant now. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's an unsettling process to live through, I think, if you're kind of instinctively conservative person. Um, but, I, but, but I would say that actually there's nothing you know, more traditional than questioning tradition in the
0: West. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you made a very interesting comment about how we there's almost a deliberate attempt now, to, if you like, sanitise Christian influence out of, particularly the Enlightenment. And I'm, just another quote here, um, you know, it's common now to assert, for example, that modern democracy, particularly American democracy, was a product of a secular Enlightenment. But you wrote, and I'm quoting, the genius of the authors of the United States Constitution was to garb in the robes of the Enlightenment the radical Protestantism that you've just been talking about, mm-hmm. that was the prime religious inheritance of their fledging nation. Do you think that the notions of a secular enlightenment fail to capture the full historical reality of modern dem- democracy, particularly America's?
1: Well, uh one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was realizing that, that so many words in English were so freighted with uh, Christian connotations that it was mm. almost impossible to use them in pre-Christian mm. contexts. So secular and enlightenment would be classic examples mm. of that. The idea of the secular, which lots of people tend to, in the West tend to assume is a given, you know, it's just like you know, a tree or a dog. The secular is just something that exists; it's unproblematic. Mm. It isn't at all. I mean, it's a, again, it's a very very Christian idea. It's rooted in the notion that you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto yep. God what is God's. Uh, over the course, specifically of, mm. of Latin Christian history, so this is much less the yep. case in in the Orthodox world, um, but in but in in the Latin West, this idea that there are twin dimensions of of, of the cyclum, the dimension of, yep. of, of the fallen earth and yep. the dimension of religio, the bond that joins us to the eternity of heaven. It kind of becomes institutionalized as part of the, the great revolutionary process that the middle ages embodies. Um, and by the 18th century, this idea that you can divide the world into rival spheres, something called religion mm-hmm. and something called the secular has absolutely mm-hmm. kind of bedded down. And it's something that the, uh, the European powers uh, and indeed the Americans mm-hmm. then kind of export around the world. The idea that the secular, the very idea that you can kind of Mm. separate religion off and Mm. make it something separate from the secular, that is a Christian idea. You don't get it Mm. anywhere else apart from Christian civilizations, Mm. uh, unless it's been exported to countries Mm. like say, India or Turkey. And we Mm. see now with Narendra Modi or with um, uh, Erdogan, that they, you know, that in in India and Turkey, there is absolutely a growing sense that these are kind, you know, the idea of the secular is a Christian import. Mm. Likewise, with the enlightenment, I mean, we've touched on this before, the idea that uh, there is darkness and people must be brought into light, that is a kind of primal Christian impulse. It's the darkness of paganism, bring them into the light of Christianity. It's the darkness of popery, bring them into kind of reform Protestantism it's the darkness of religion, bring them into the light of the secular. These are the repetition of these kind of rhythms that go all the way through Christian history. The particular genius of the the founding fathers in America is because there are so many different denominations there, you know, it's not just different Protestant denominations, but also there are Catholics, Um, they need to fashion a, a way of articulating these deeply felt, deeply held, ultimately Christian truths mm. in a way that um, isn't kind of taking a doctrinal, uh, a, a sectarian perspective, but can cast itself as universal. And so hence the, the, the you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the founding, doc, Jeff, Jefferson's mm. founding documents, yeah. this idea that these are kind of universal truths and that, this is a trick that western powers have pulled again and again mm. and i would say that the declaration of you know the united nations declaration of human rights is the kind of high watermark of that yes it's kind I agree of with it. you know it's yeah. it's 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 signed in paris yeah <laughs> you know, of all cities, mm. you know, Paris, of course, also has has declarations of human rights in the French mm. Revolution, and it's it's in the aftermath of the Second World War when Western mm. power is absolutely at its mm. at its height, and it's able to enforce this idea that there are human rights mm. as somehow um, transcending culture. It's yeah. it's a universal given, but it isn't. It's a Christian, it's, it's a Christian tradition.
0: Um, Tom, you've been very generous with your time as we as we come into land. Can I say to you the thing that that really troubles me as a former legislator who cares passionately for personal freedom and the opportunity for people to reach fulfilment, live in a flourishing society? What really worries me is that I think what Christianity has given, if you like, the secular world, truly understood, so it's not divorced from Christianity so much as the world in which we now live, we need good governance and so forth, what has been so uniquely important is this recognition of the worth and dignity of all? I sound like a crack record because I talk about it a lot. No, uh,
1: but, but, but you're absolutely right. So that is utterly important.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I look at the issue of slavery and I think the recognition that uh, the way you treat other people, even if they were slaves, is plainly in Christian doctrine of incredible importance because you've got to respect they're made in the image of a higher authority. That's mm-hmm. the idea. What worries me, and I think this is what you see so clearly and you bring out, it goes back to Nietzsche. What's the alternative? We saw it in Natsumu, so repulsed we walk away from but we haven't found a substitute basis upon which we can rest this idea that democracy depends upon, that the king ultimately must respect the serf just as the serf has to respect the king, that there's a thing called the common law. It's imperfect but the king's subject to the same law as the lowest person in the land, it rests on something that's of critical importance. I must respect you whether we agree or not. Mm-hmm. And if you take that away, as the Nazis saw, and as you so clearly illustrated as a Christian idea, where's the substitute? Where do we find a bedrock? That's what worries me.
1: Well, the, the, the problem is that, that these ideas are I- inherently... Theologically based. Every society needs myths, and um, you know. I also say that every society obeys uh, impulses that that are very deeply rooted, um, and you know, it, it 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 can be hard to know where those impulses may may take a society. But I I do think that a, a problem with the, the the tradition of withering skepticism is that you you know it's like sitting on a branch where you you saw the branch off um and i'm i'm not sure how firmly you know how deep the roots of our of our myths go if they if they're not being kind of watered by christian nutrients but that's a terrible <laughs> that's a terrible extended metaphor no, no, but, exactly but, but, but 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 you know, ultimately, the, the the flowers of the blooms of uh, human rights and of um, the respect for those who are low, and the, as well as for those who are high, are rooted in a very distinctive um, theologically based culture, and. The question is, can, can liberalism, can secularism, can those kind of ideas, once they've been bled of the mysterious and the supernatural and the theological, do they still have enough kind of nutrients to sustain these blooms? And I think that the jury is out on that. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, we talked about the Nazis uh, as, as kind of constituting, if you like, um, a, a new mythology i th- i think for for lots of people hitler is a far more fig you know vivid figure than than satan and and the nazis are far more kind of terrifying as embodiments of evil than than you know demons in hell uh, and so i think that in a sense that has sustained a kind of christian idea that evil does exist and that therefore by extension good must exist um and I think that our society at the moment is, is kind of pretty much rooted. So, 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 you know, in the 19th century, people would say, what would Jesus do? And people still do in very kind of Christian parts of the world. What would Jesus do? And then, then try and do it. I think certainly in the more kind of liberal, progressive, sceptical, humanist reaches of the West, people now say, what would Hitler do? And do the opposite. And by doing the opposite, they're doing it for Christian reasons because we, there's a, there are Christian reasons why we enshrine Hitler as evil, but it's a kind of refraction of it. And really the question for all our you know, Western societies going through the, the, the 21st century is, is that enough? Is that enough? Or do, do, how can we resacralize these ideas that, that are so fundamental to democracy? Uh, That's so fundamental to human rights. They are ultimately kind of sacral ideas And if we're suspicious of everything that's to do with the sacral, then I think there's a problem there
0: Well, Tom as one who's really concerned that we've become a what Oz Guinness calls a cut flower society Uh, You know the flowers are in a vase now and they're cut off from the sustaining uh, Nutrients and and water and what have you Uh, I can only thank you for challenging every one of us to think this through at a deeper level. I I salute your enormous learning, the sharpness of your mind, the warmth with which you engage, and frankly, your courage. You must have been very surprised by the tremendous debate you've stirred up, and it's a great credit to you, I think, that it's been a pretty civil debate, and (laughs) that's terrific mightn't have always felt like that to you. But yeah. I think, you know. Well,
1: having written about the origins of Islam, it, it, it certainly seemed a lot more civil than the debate around well, that's that, an I can tell you. comment in itself. <laughs> I can only thank you very
0: much indeed for, for what you've done, not just in talking to me, which is very kind of you, but, but more generally for our culture as we, we... I think we're starting to wake up. We're facing some pretty big foundational questions and we can't duck them forever. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au. Our kids have said to us since we've
1: moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.